Welcome to the Women's Wisdom, Our Journey in Emergency Medicine podcast, a production of the Women in Emergency Medicine section of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. Join Dr. Molly Estes as she's joined by prominent women in emergency medicine and other special guests. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our episode of the Women's Wisdom podcast. My name is Molly Estes. I'm clinical faculty at Loma Linda University in Southern California, and I'm joined by two incredible women today. I'm Liz Calhoun. I'm an attending physician at Mercy Catholic Medical Center at Mercy Fitzgerald Hospital in Darby, Pennsylvania. And our special guest today is Dr. Marianne Howey. Marianne, introduce yourself. Uh, hey, I'm Marianne Howie. I am uh, the Director of Faculty Development at LIJ Northwell, uh, and I am also one of the APDs for the residency program. And as all of our listeners know, all our, pod- our podcast is all about women's journeys in emergency medicine, and not just women's journeys, but all of our journeys in emergency medicine. So Marianne was gracious enough to let Liz and I volunteer her into being on our podcast today. Thank you very much for the invitation. So excited to have you on, Marianne, especially after just seeing you at Scientific Assembly. Before the podcast started, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about you and your journey in emergency medicine and aging well in emergency medicine, which is one of your hot topics, so much so that you started an interest group that revolves around it. Can you tell us more? Yes, I can tell you everybody should join the interest group. That's one thing I can tell you. <laughs> uh, so Monday I turned 57 and I was one of those kids that went straight through. Like I did med school and back in the old days, they didn't have post And so, you know, I did college, I did med school, I did residency straight through all the way through. And so I've been practicing emergency medicine as an attending since 1996. Um, and I think over the last little bit, because one of my interests all along has been about mentorship and guidance and kind of seeing what's the next hurdle, um, I realized that um, that how do you age well is not a topic that our organizations as a group have touched on. So, and part of that is so so to give a uh, a shout out to my uncle my uncle's probably one of the original board certified emergency physicians right so he finished residency or finished finished med school or residency i can't remember in 72 out in california um so it he's a generation ahead of us but a generation ahead of me did not include a lot of programs didn't include a lot of people mm-hmm. so that being said our our profession has expanded remarkably. And in addition, now you have my generation hitting that phase where we're also at that phase of our career where we're approaching our 60s, we're trying to figure out what the next game is going to be, how are we going to play this out, and what are all the challenges that might be different. And when I looked at AEM and they had the YPS section that obviously addresses, you know, the new young physician issues that come out, which could include things like how do you save for retirement or how do you figure out your finances or how do you figure out the balances of, you know, childcare and your family. Um, I realized as I and my friends were encountering challenges, no one else had talked about really how do you take care of your elders, right? Because I 
currently have my mother-in-law living with us. She has dementia. She's an incredible pleasure and we're lucky to have her here. And then my parents' health is also declining enormously and they live in a hospital. So there is this incredible overlap, which, which again is manageable, but it's also stuff that I hadn't really talked about with anyone because people who are senior to me um, weren't as many and our people are just kind of hitting this. I started the Aging Well and Emergency Medicine Group with much debate about the title, right? Because it really isn't just about people who are older and how they approach the problem. This is about setting it up so that the group that's coming behind us already has like signposts and roadmaps to know what the challenges are. There's, there's two like really big topics here wrapped up within this topic of aging and emergency medicine that I want to pick your brain about a little bit, because I'll be honest with you, this is not a topic that I had ever heard talked about until I had my first conversation with you about it and you blew my worldview wide open. Um, sorry, so, sorry for scaring you. No, 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 no. A, a, appropriate consideration of the future <laughs> is uh, the way that I entitle it. Uh, so there's two different aspects to this. One mm -hmm. is the you personally as a physician aspect. So how do you plan for longevity within the specialty? And then the second half of it is, like you said, a topic that we don't talk about, which is now, now the considerations are not, how do you be a young parent balancing your kids and your family, but instead the opposite? How do you be an older adult? Sure, maybe with adult kids balancing that situation, but now with your own parents who have now re-become dependents. So let's start with, so let's start with the first part because I really just want to lead in to ask you this question, which is what's the secret? Because not only have you now successfully survived the COVID pandemic and all of the issues there, but you have seen so many generations of problems within the house of emergency medicine. And yet mm. you are still very much present and active in the specialty, not only practicing clinically, but in multiple uh, positions of leadership. So what is your secret to longevity and success? I think I have been lucky to basically play with my friends all the way through. And, um, you know, residency was obviously incredibly hard, but all of us know that we forge these great relationships in residency. And those relationships have um, continued to entwine me the rest of my career. Um, one thing actually that was super interesting to me is, so the, the short version of my career is I do residency at Jacoby. I stay there for the next 20 years as an attending. I leave, I become the program director at uh, another program in the Bronx at St. Barnabas for three and a half years. Um, I was essentially an APD at Jacoby and then became PD at Barnabas. And after three and a half years, I had, um, had the opportunity to move to LIJ and I'll talk more about that in a second. One of the things that's super interesting to me is when, when I left Jacoby, there were a large number of people who left. There were about half the attendings, which you know often happens. You have a leadership shift, things change, and then the people who have been there decide that that's not where they want to be anymore, and they want to move on to something else for whatever their various reasons. Sure. 
And I brought this up, I think it was Esther Chu that I was talking to, although I'm not 100% sure, at one of the conferences. And I mentioned to her that a group of us were leaving and she said, well, how many people? And I'm like, well, probably about 15. And when those 15 people left, they had gone on, not, uni not universally, but close to universally to become um, chairman or program directors or research directors, they all moved on to a position of significant authority in whatever their next leap was. Wow, that's impressive. It is. And and her response was, what a waste. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she said, well, what a waste, because if they had all those talents to make those shifts at that time, then they should have they should have made those shifts earlier. Huh, interesting. And my perspective was, you don't know what an incredibly rich environment we were in, in terms of working with the same people for 20 years. And when you work with the same people for 20 years and you, um, nobody, nobody at that point was vying for titles or, you know, it, it, that wasn't important. This was like essentially working with your family where you have, you know, your crazy uncle, your crazy aunt, and like, you know, the person who wears a hat at every party, but nevertheless, these are the people that you are putting shoulder to shoulder to get things done on a daily basis. And out of that, there was so much productivity in terms of if you're not vying for a title or if you're not like super focused on advancing, then you can put your energies into building all sorts of connections and interactions that can be productive in other ways. Yvette Calderon, who I've called out numerous times as just being one of my amazing mentors, she was two years ahead of me from Jacoby. In that transition, she became the chair of BI, which is uh, the Manhattan BI, not the, the Mount Sinai BI, not the, the Boston BI. And um, her, her leap was really where she was taking on this huge role, right, as chair. Um, her research director became one of the other people who eventually left, which was Ethan Collins, who's NIH funded and, and as, as was Yvette, I'm sorry, Yvette also NIH funded, uh, now a member of the, um, shoot, what's it called? Something of Institute of Medicine. Now a member of the Institute of Medicine. Okay. Oh, and by the way, now a member of the ABM board. And um, by the way, you know, all of these other things that she, for instance, just in that one person has accomplished. And realizing to spend time together where we were able to build, she and I did a whole bunch of research stuff way back when, when HIV was relatively new in terms of HIV testing in the emergency department, back when insurance companies would not, it was a real big deal because they might cut you off if you were HIV positive. So how did you negotiate that? How did you negotiate consent? Ethan put in a video consent system that we then tested and is now, it's now something that is used commonly in terms of video consent for other things as well. Um, and realizing the amount of creativity that you could bring to what your job is gonna be and how that can play out is just amazing. So I guess one of the things, the real secret is having stayed in the same place that was a productive and good place mm -hmm. and where you had these relationships that you could build things where on a Tuesday we'd be like, oh, geez, this sounds like a great study. Maybe we should do this. And then by Wednesday, somebody was like putting the IRB thing together. 
or gee, I think we need to reach out to our community because like there's a gun violence thing. And then by the next week we had doctors against violence or something that, that a group of us had put together. Um, so allowing your creative juices to continue to flow through connections and relationships to help support that. It's always easier to do stuff when you have friends around. That so that's like step were, number, sorry. I was gonna say that sounds like you were able to foster a really supportive environment there. Yeah. Is there anything that you would have had a younger version of yourself ask one of your mentors if you knew what you knew now or something that you might've done differently to kind of help strengthen that network and carry it through as a young attending? Um, I think I would have told myself not to sweat the small stuff. Like, just don't sweat the small stuff. It'll all work out. It'll all well, be fine. Just don't get hung up on details. And don't be afraid to keep going forward. Hard, Is but that advice. Yeah. Yeah. Is that turning into a mantra now that you're trying to deal with all the transitions with your own family and the elderly family members trying not to sweat the small stuff or is it bigger mm. than that? One of the things that is huge about dealing with my little geriatric population is realizing they're not little. And, and the pieces that are really important to put into place to keep everyone safe and healthy and in the right place um, almost everything I've done would have been better if I did it two or three years earlier. Like Ooh, if we had switched my parents to geriatric physicians three years ago, great, great plan. Didn't do that. Um, if we had dealt with like the elder lawyer to figure out how do you set up the finances in terms of, you know, if someone needs a nursing home, if they don't need a nursing home, how do you move the finances in terms of, because with my mom's dementia, honestly, she's not at a position where she can control her finances in any way, shape or form. How do you, how do you make sure that's okay? How do you, I mean, I'm lucky. I live two and a half miles from them. My sister lives another mile from me. So we're both very, very involved. But if I was doing this long distance, I would, I would be even further behind the eight ball. Um, go ahead. Oh, so, so you, I mean, hindsight's 2020, 20, right? And you Correct. said now at this point in time, you're looking back saying, oh, this would have been so much easier two or three years ago. What were some of the early indicators that you can now identify having been on the other side of this two or three years that should have prompted you to start that process earlier. And to be very honest, I am, I am purely picking your brain at this point because, yeah, yeah, yeah. because of our conversations, these are now things that I'm trying to plan ahead, you know, 20, 30 years in my own future for when my parents are at that stage as well. <laughs> well, I think one of the things we're doing, so in common sense, every, every issue, we're putting out a new topic that we're tackling from the group. And honestly, a bunch of it is coming from personal experience that we want to help others with. So I'd have to look at the page to see where it is. But one of the topics was dealing with, you know, elderly parents and how do you approach it. And I think there's ways to go deeper into it. We also had, um, which, which, you know, is a non sequitur here, and I'm pretty much going to put it out there and leave it on the table. But it was a trigger for a lot of what happened with my parents in that their house burned now. Um, so their house burned down in 2018 in February and my brother died in the fire. So when that happened, that, that was a hell of a trigger. 
that was a hell of a trigger. And um, just, they actually dealt with the short-term aftermath of that as well as one could. But I think that all of these other people that are useful and have so much to teach me, I went and I did my taxes with my father for the first time this year. I've never done my taxes, with, like his taxes. I went, I went and did his taxes. We had shared an accountant. She actually stepped out of practice. So we were going to a new account that I checked out first. So I went to this new accountant with that stuff. And then, then I went with my dad. And it was um, because I have never done this before. I don't know if his lack of interaction and involvement was because he's declined or that's where he always was. And there's a serious chance that my mom used to handle all this. Like that's, that's very likely. My mom, to give her credit, in 2007, had my sister and I, I don't know if this should go down there, but had my sister and I set up two separate places to store her jewelry. So I had, she made me get a safe deposit box. And she did that with the foresight of, let's not make this something that either, not that my sister and I would fight about jewelry, but let's not, let's not make this something that creates division later. And also let's put it somewhere where it's safe for them, mm -hmm. which who knew? I think that's and so smart. <laughs> it, it, re it really was smart. And she had done all this stuff. Like she had already given us power of attorney and the rest of it, unfortunately, post-fire and dementia, we can't figure out where the hell she put them. So we had to get new ones. But um, there's a whole bunch of financial stuff. What, fun fact, and this is going a little deep in the weeds, but honestly, never knew. My, my father's basically finances are in pensions. He worked for New York City. He has pension from two different jobs, actually. He has pensions. Um, and so his pension income comes in every month. And that's his income. My mother's income is all out of 401ks. That's treated very, very differently by the government. And I'm very pro-government. We should all pay taxes and we should all give lots of money to help, you know, all these other people who don't have what we have. And, and I support any and all government programs that do that. But realizing that essentially um, she's able to protect money in a 401k whether hypothetically for us or for herself in terms of paying for AIDS or something along those lines, which is a different thing. There's just, there's, there's a whole bunch of financial stuff that we're obviously smart enough to learn, but you, who thinks about it? It also is helping me as I'm planning my retirement because I understand I won't have a pension, but actually my husband does. So how do we think about the finances that way? How do we think about how that plays out? I, I just, I, I know that I'm talking like in circles and I apologize for that, but I almost feel like it's like every time I sit down to figure something out with them, it is like an aha moment. So, well, and you're not talking in circles because it is incredibly complicated, right? And what I hear you saying is the secret to longevity within our specialty is very largely due to the people you surround yourself with work with your family, work with your friends, work with people who drive you and your creativity forward, but people that you can also feed into their drive and their creativity, because it's not always just the day in and day out of our job. Although 
we are happy to serve our patients in any way that we possibly can, but it's the other aspects of our job that keep us coming back every single day. And then what I hear you saying about the trick to being able to fulfill this role of adult caretaker for your parents is kind of what we tell our patients all the time about going to their primary care doctor, which is establishing a baseline. So having Mm -hmm. conversations early, participating in some of these routine adulting activities early with your parents, that way you can have information or you can know where things are, or you can know their thought processes or what normally happens. And so then you can be able to pick up on the abnormal behaviors or when things do begin to change. Mm. Well, Marianne, from everything you've said, it sounds like you are really the role model we should all be looking up to here. But a lot of how you learn that is from mentorship and learning from others. Can you talk more about your relationship with some of the great mentors you had both at Jacoby and then as you've moved on and how they've really helped keep you well and balanced throughout your career? Yeah, I mean, uh, so many. And I think one of the other things to think about, so I've talked about Yvette a little bit and she's, she's just an amazing mentor on many, many levels. We had children around the same time. We had um, this research work we did together. Um, There's a whole bunch of parts to what uh, Yvette and I did that really was really powerful, both in um, my professional identity formation, as well as how do you prioritize what you need to do as you go forward. Um, I think that um, the other level of mentorship as time has gone on. So I, this job that I'm in now is honest to God, thanks to Tom Pereira. And then by extension to Lance Becker, who's my chair and to Nancy Kwan, who's also, uh, I guess the vice chair at LIJ. And so Tom was in my residency class. And when it was time for me to shift from my last job, um, I sent him a message and, and, we communicated and essentially they were able to, um, there's a need for, there's a need for faculty development at a lot of levels in a lot of departments. And at that point I was a full professor and have a skill set that honestly had been, uh, that particular skill set I think was kind of underused at my last job. But coming into this job, a whole bunch of my job is how do you do faculty development and how do you do it well? And how my angle on faculty development is a little different from other people's faculty development since I got the job, I get to make it up. So that's always fun. Um, so, so the first part was getting to know who's in the faculty, right? That was a challenge because it was a brand new place to me. Um, but then the second part of that is figuring out what are their goals and what do they wanna do and what makes them excited and what's gonna keep them happy for the next 30 years. And I think that that may be where on some levels, some places drop the ball. You know, like I, any of the faculty development program stuff that I see from the med school is often about how do you teach better? How do you do, how do you, basically, how do you learn the set of micro skills well, right? How do you figure out these micro skills that will help you um, come and produce for the med school better? I like to think of it as, Ooh, emergency medicine has a lot of facets. I work, there's a tox program where I am. And one of the guys is planting his garden. And of course he wants to plant his garden with all a combination of medicinal and poisonous plants all in the same garden. Um, Like 
That's hysterical. That's absolutely fascinating. And that is automatically a niche in emergency medicine, right? I don't even know what to say to that. Like, I think my, my toxicology colleagues are just kind of in a panic right now. I'm worried about being accidentally poisoned. Well, don't eat <laughs> the plants. Don't eat the foxglove. Don't, don't eat the eat foxglove. They're very pretty. There are, there are poisonous plants in almost everybody's garden. If you take a look around, you know, most people, plants, plants and toxicology actually is something that's been interesting to me for, I did a reading rotation with Dr. Goldfrank probably in 19... 19- 91 on poisonous plants, which I, you know, I didn't understand that I was going to connect with uh, Bramble Wells about it at this point. But, but by definition, that, that little interest could be an entire niche, and frankly, an entire career in emergency medicine. You can imagine the publications and the the talks one could build out of that. And that happens to be one of the many things he likes. He has many, many interests. When I talk to people who are expert skiers, right, that's an automatic link to uh, wilderness medicine. And how do you kind of angle into whether it is skiing in wilderness medicine, or if it's going to be something that's in some other way connected to water safety? This is, this is prevention of drowning month, actually. So how do you, how do you plug into that? Um, so I think that it really is real faculty development is about finding out what is, what is it that floats this person's boat that's going to be interesting to them 10 years from now. The other thing about it is the idea that you shift. I took a slightly shift, different shift in my focus probably every five years. So, uh, you know, I took on doing the hyperbaric chamber is one of the things I did. I took on... Um, being involved heavily in medical student education. I was then involved heavily in resident education. And, you know, how do you, how do you shift those things and make them stay interesting and keep your focus kind of moving while building on what you had before? Um, as to mentorship, I think the peer mentorship and actually at this point, uh, people who were my residents are now my mentors, right? I think one of the keys to doing this long-term is the absolute requirement for any emergency physician is humility, just because you have no idea who's going to teach you something that's important that they read yesterday, but pertains to your area of medicine and expertise today. Um, and it could be any number of things. When I was in residency and I had just done my tox rotation down at Bellevue, um, at that point, bufo frogs were in and bufo toxin. So this senior faculty member who was absolutely brilliant, he was one of the guys who worked into his uh, late 60s doing straight overnights. But somebody came in and they had gotten what they got was, you know, something called rock hard, which was supposed to be used externally. But in the Bronx, people were taking it internally, and it was essentially bufotoxin, which was uh, a digitalis equivalent, um, which doesn't do great when you take it internally, by the way. So this guy came in in third degree heart block. And so, so at that moment, I had probably learned that thing the week before, and lo and behold, it was important. In the same vein, when one of the kids comes in and they've learned something, I am always open to being taught. And going forward, Lisa Moreno was one of my residents and she's very generous in pointing this out, but she's clearly a mentor to me in about 50 million ways. 
you know, one of the key factors is I had a paper on mentorship, actually, that I wanted to publish. I had written it. I had done the talk with my uncle. So I had written a paper after that. Um, because one of the other secrets to success is always make things count more than once. But so I, I was like, Lisa, I'll write the paper, but I need to get it published. And her tenacity in getting something published is unbelievable. And it was not a skill set I had. And so she kept reporting back to me where she was submitting it, where it got turned down from, where they were looking at it a second time, whatever. It got published. And Lisa Amazing. taught me how to do it. So God bless her. So how's that? Does that answer the question? I think that more than answers the question. Um, unfortunately, geez, I just wish these conversations could go on for forever, to be honest with you, because I, I can't even begin to tell you how I'm sitting over here taking notes is what I'm doing is just like all my little life lessons that I'm learning over the course of the last X number of minutes that we've been chatting. And well, I join aging to... well in emergency medicine. There you go. The There's the plug, everybody. Open the all. I wish we'd had this conversation well. yesterday when I was down visiting my dad and not thinking about half of these things I should have been. <laughs> but well, it's never too late. It is it's never too, too right. late. Exactly. We cannot thank you enough for taking the time to share your wisdom with us on this podcast. And before you shake your head at me yet again and, you know, start to say no, 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 no. Yes, you do have a lot of wisdom to share. And we are incredibly grateful for your transparency and your honesty and your drive to continue to make not only our specialty, but our support of each other that much more better. So thank you so much for being on our podcast today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, thank you for honoring me with the invitation. And to all of our listeners out there, keep listening. We will see you on the next episode of the Women's Wisdom Podcast. Take care, everybody. Hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians dedicated to board certification and democratic group practice. For more information about AAEM, visit our website at www.aaem.org. Find all episodes of this podcast and our other podcast series on the AAEM website under resources and then publications. Join us again next episode for a new journey through emergency medicine.